Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 32, the book of Matthew, chapter 9, continued. The subject that we're going to focus on to begin today's lesson is a dispute between John the Baptist's disciples and Yeshua's disciples. Now, ostensibly, this is over the subject of fasting. This is what Matthew 9, 14 through 17 revolves around. Now, we're going to go forward today in bite-sized chunks because there's so much to take from these passages. So, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we're just going to read verses 14 through 17. That begins on page 1, 2, 3, 3, 1, 2, 3, 3, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Matthew 9, starting at verse 14. Next, Yochanan's Talmudim, John's disciples, came to him and asked, Why is it that we and the Parshim, the Pharisees, fast frequently, but your disciples don't fast at all? And Yeshua said to them, can wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is still with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast. No one patches an old coat with a piece of unshrunk cloth, because the patch tears away from the coat and leaves a worse hole. Nor do people put new wine in old wineskins, because if they do, the skins burst, the wine spills, the wineskins are ruined. No. They pour new wine into freshly prepared wineskins. This way, both are preserved. The context is this Yeshua is still in the fishing village in the Galilee where he's currently residing, and that's Capernaum. Now, he was dining with some tax collectors and with a class of people known among the Jews as sinners. Now, don't take the term sinners to mean as Christianity thinks of it today. That is that in Christendom, a sinner is a, either it's a person who does not profess the Savior Jesus, or they're a fallen Christian who is not living out his or her faith in a biblically moral way. However, in Christ's day, a sinner was a Jew who had either openly renounced the Law of Moses, something pretty rare, or much more often, it was that they showed no outward intent of following it. Now, typically, these were the poor Jews, uneducated, probably not even attending a synagogue with any regularity. Therefore, they were considered, especially among the Pharisees, as those who were so ignorant so uninformed that it was impossible for them to properly observe the traditions of the elders, let alone the biblical laws of Moses. So while Yeshua was still at the table, some of John the Baptist's disciples spoke to some of Yeshua's disciples, and they asked them why they did not fast frequently as the Baptists did, and instead they didn't fast at all. Notice two things. First of all, 
John the Baptist was the master over his own flock of followers who felt no allegiance to Jesus. And second, the only reason that these disciples would have fasted regularly is because they were doing what their master John had taught them as a proper doctrine. Now it's ironic that despite John being the chosen one to announce the arrival of Christ and the kingdom of heaven, nonetheless there is little evidence in the New Testament that he ever fully understood the nature and the mission of Jesus. And further, that his own disciples, John the Baptist's own disciples, never felt a real attachment to the ways of Christ, but rather they chose to follow the ways and teachings of John. And clearly those two sets of doctrines did not always agree. So Yeshua overheard John's disciples confronting his own disciples, and so he jumped into the fray in order to correct them. And what he said wasn't a hard put-down, as it seems it was to the young man who wanted to follow Christ, but only after his father passed away and was buried. See, rather, Yeshua's response to John's disciples was merely instructional. And he used a few metaphors and illustrations to make his point. The first illustration that he used was to compare the circumstances of a wedding process versus the wedding being interrupted and thereby causing sadness. He used terms, he used a metaphor that were known not only to every common Jewish person, but even to the Jewish outcasts of society. Now the subject of the metaphor was of a bridegroom. And I said last week that Christ was not saying He was a bridegroom. I want to take that a little bit further. See, in His brief analogy, He certainly meant that within His story that He was representing Himself in the role or the character of a bridegroom, but that's not to say that in real life He was thinking of Himself as an actual bridegroom of sorts. Now one might argue I'm making a distinction without a difference. However, I respond, there is a definite difference between characterizing oneself as a bridegroom versus comparing oneself to a bridegroom as an analogy to make a point. We have to be terribly careful when we find metaphors and illustrations and analogies arise as used in the Bible, that, that, that we don't take them beyond their intent. The point of the case that Christ is making is that there's a time for joy and there's a time for mourning, but those two things are generally not compatible, so they don't happen at the same time. Now since marriage, marriage is one of the happiest of occasions in the Bible and within Jewish society, then it contrasts well with mourning, the saddest of occasions. So to express such happiness, 
a bridegroom by custom was always responsible to throw a big party with a lavish feast complete with plenty of wine as its focal point. Mourning, on the other hand, was to be accompanied with fasting. Now please notice this illustration of joy and mourning and then what happens with a bridegroom is approximate, it's not precise. We can find several examples in the Prophets where joy and mourning do happen simultaneously. Here's one of the best known in Revelation chapter 18, starting to read at verse 10. Standing at a distance for fear of her torment, they will say, Oh no, the great city, Babel, the mighty city, in a single hour your judgment has come. The world's businessmen weep, they mourn over her because no one is buying their merchandise anymore. Moving down to verse 17. Such great wealth in a single hour ruined all the shipmasters, the passengers, the sailors, everyone making his living from the sea stood at a distance and they cried out when they saw the smoke as she burned. Oh, what city was like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they wept and they mourned saying, Oh no! The great city, the abundance of her wealth, made all the shipowners rich in a single hour. She's ruined. Rejoice over her, heaven. Rejoice, people of God, emissaries and prophets, for in judging her, God has vindicated you. The point being that while joy and mourning, feasting and fasting don't usually occur at the same time, they can in some circumstances. In the same way, we must not take the bridegroom metaphor or any metaphor in the Bible as more than a simple but not rigid, not exact mental picture that humans can better grasp. So the Peshat sense of Yeshua's illustration with the bridegroom is what we've already discussed. Yeshua has taught His disciples not to fast for the time being. This would be about voluntary fasts, by the way, not about biblically commanded ones. Even though John's disciples have been taught to fast regularly. However, in the Ramez sense, the hint, the deeper underlying meaning, it is that as a result as the, of the advent of Yeshua, some things have become incompatible. It's a teaching with a warning attached. So Jesus here drops a hint that while He's here with His disciples for now, in time He will be gone. And when He is taken from them, that will be the proper time for mourning. Now I can't imagine that any of His attendees understood the depth of what He was telling them. I mean, so much of what He said and would say are comprehensible only in hindsight, the hindsight that we get. Nevertheless, Christ was implying that while He was living and ministering, it was to be taken as a time of great joy. After all, the prophesied Messiah has come. The one who can heal and forgive sins has come. So He wasn't about to have His disciples fast as representative of a time of mourning. Naturally, He did not mean it in the sense 
of disobeying any of the laws of Moses where fasting was required, such as on Yom Kippur. Now as we move on to verse 16, Yeshua uses another illustration to make His point about mourning and fasting, or better, about the deeper underlying meaning of it, the incompatibilities that are a result of His and the Kingdom of Heaven's arrival. Now this illustration concerns the patching of an old garment with a piece of as not yet shrunk cloth. This was another analogy chosen because the mechanics of patching garments was common knowledge, even among the common people of all nations, not just the Jews. Everyone knew that if you patched a hole in a cloth garment using a piece a, a new piece of cloth that had not been previously washed, it had not been immersed, and thus shrunk was the natural thing that happens to linen or cloth, all right? But it has to get immersed in order for that to happen. Then the first time the newly patched garment is washed, the previously unshrink, unshrunk piece of cloth patch, what's it going to do? It's going to contract. It's going to shrink. But the old garment, it's not going to shrink because it has already shrunk as far as it's ever going to. So the result is the new cloth patch pulls away from the stitching and a hole reopens. But what exactly can Christ mean by this? Now see, the standard meaning within the institutional church is that the old garment represents the Old Testament, or perhaps only the laws of Moses. The new cloth patch represents the New Testament, or perhaps only the coming of the Messiah. Therefore, one must not try to patch the old with the new, rather the old can only be discarded in favor of the new. Now that certainly is an appealing interpretation for an anti-Law of Moses, anti-Jewish, Gentiles-only church, <laughs> but it sure doesn't fit the context of the passage very well, and it also doesn't fit well with Christ's central theme in the Sermon on the Mount that happened just days earlier when He said that He did not come to abolish the law. He didn't come to abolish the old thing. He didn't come to abolish what the church says is the old garment, but rather to complete it. Rather, He forthrightly stated that all of His followers were to continue to obey the law down to the last detail. But they were to do so in a new spirit, in a spirit of obeying the command, not just outwardly, not just behaviorally, but also inwardly, in motive, in intent. Let me remind you what Matthew 5, 17-19 says. Do not think I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to complete. 
Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uterus stroke is going to pass from the Torah, and not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these mitzvot, the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now applying the reality that all analogies and illustrations in the Bible are approximate and general, not exact and, 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 and universal, then we need to understand this from a first century Jewish mindset and in the context we find it in this passage. See, the underlying issue is it's not replacing anything. It's not about replacing one thing with a new thing. Rather, it concerns incompatibilities in light of the arrival of Christ in the kingdom of heaven. So for people of that era, what's the problem issue about sewing a patch onto an older garment of cloth? It is that while the existing garment has already been cleansed by immersion, the newer patch has not been. It has not been immersed. So before applying a patch, it must first be immersed in water sufficiently until it can match the same level of shrinkage with the older garment. Otherwise, the, other, the, the, the two of them are incompatible. There is no hint, it would never have occurred to a Jewish reader, that the old garment was going to be discarded in favor of a new one. I'm going to say it again. The issue is addressing incompatibility. Thus, while the old garment needs a patch, it in no way has lost its usefulness. Conversely, the only thing wrong with the patch being used in Christ's story is it's not yet been immersed and washed clean, and in the process it shrinks. So it won't work well with the garment that's being patched. This is the Peshat. This is the plain, literal, simple sense of it. But the Remez sense goes a bit deeper. In the Remez, the unshrunk patch, the cloth that is yet to be immersed and cleansed, is not to be applied. It's not to be applied until it has been properly washed so that it can serve the purpose for which it was intended. By definition, a cloth patch is smaller, far smaller, than the garment it's being sewn onto. The patch doesn't replace the garment. It's not used instead of the garment. Nor is the patch the main feature of the garment. It completes the garment so that it can be used as originally intended. However, a patch that is not properly uh, used either doesn't make the garment whole again, or can make it even worse than it was before. What did Christ say in his analogy? Because the patch tears away from the coat, the garment, and it leaves it worse, leaves a worse hole. See, here's what we're intended to take from this. Christ's teachings, which are a sort of reformation about the Torah, were indeed to be applied to what people thought they knew about the Torah. But compared to the Torah, 
His teachings were but a proper patch placed upon it, not a whole new garment. And why did the old garment, the Torah, have need of a patch? Because in the context of the passage, God's people had misused it, just as John's disciples were misusing fasting. Going back now to the bridegroom analogy, Christ was in no way abolishing fasting as biblically prescribed. He was also in no way abolishing mourning. But he was saying that all these extra rules about when to fast and when to mourn, the Judaism, or better at that time, Phariseeism, had created, tradition had added to the Jewish religion, while not necessarily a bad thing, it was incompatible with the current circumstances of His Divine Presence and the establishment of the Kingdom of Heaven on earth. Now, the garment needed the addition of a patch because the wearer tore a hole in it. The Torah needed a patch, Christ's instructions about restoring its true meaning, not because the Torah was defective, but because the wearer had torn a hole in it. The wearers, God's Hebrew worshipers, had in Yeshua's era, uh, long before that even, turned to tradition and other man-made doctrines about the Torah and thus had, metaphorically, torn a hole in it. And while Christ's teaching needed to be applied as the new patch, it had to be done carefully, thoughtfully, prayerfully, and only when the one attempting to apply the patch, a worshiper of Christ, had properly understood it, had washed it, and immersed it in His teachings, so that when it was applied to the garment, the old garment, the Torah, it didn't rip it back open, making it even worse. This interpretation fits the context of how to make the new cloth compatible with the old garment, not the other way around. And it fits with the common knowledge and the understanding among the people of that day about applying a patch to an otherwise perfectly good garment. Now, keeping that context in mind, let's move on to another well-known saying of Jesus about not putting new wine into old wineskins. In verse 17, Christ uses another commonly known procedure as a Another illustration of incompatibilities, that of winemaking. And just as with not putting a new, unshrunk patch onto a used garment, one wouldn't put new wine into a well-used wineskin because the wineskin, the container, might burst. The term new wine indicates a couple of things in that from that era. First, it could mean filtered grape juice, ready to begin the fermenting process that turns it into wine. Second, it could also mean a lightly fermented grape juice that has a very low alcohol content because the fermenting process had either just barely begun or it was intentionally interrupted. A natural byproduct 
of fermentation is the production of gases, ethanol and carbon dioxide. Since the fermentation process necessarily must occur inside of a sealed container, in our case wineskins, then the pressure of those gases builds up, and the wineskins must be able to contain that pressure or they're going to burst and the wine will be lost. You ever find an old balloon, been laying around your house for years, and you foolishly pick it up and blow into it? What happens? Up it goes, boom it goes, and you get slapped in the face with it. Therefore, older wineskins were best not used in the fermentation process because after a few uses they will have lost their elasticity and could burst instead of merely stretching in the same way a new balloon works. Even so, the older wineskins remain valuable. They remain useful as a storage container for wine that's already been already has completed the fermentation process and it's now ready for distribution and consumption. Now the standard Christian doctrine on the interpretation of this is that since we should not put new wine into old wineskins, then the old wineskins have become obsolete and they're just to be discarded, just thrown away into a trash heap. And as with the garment and the patch, the old wineskins are said by the church to represent the Old, old Testament and the new wine that goes into the new wineskins represents Jesus and the New Testament. Therefore, the conclusion is the Old Testament's no longer useful. And in fact, some of it had become defective. So it had to be replaced with the New Testament. Again, this inter interpretation not only takes the passage out of its context and separates it away from its theme of incompatibilities, it completely ignores the second half of the verse, which is no. They pour new wine into freshly prepared wineskins, and in this way both old and new wineskins are preserved. Some in the church say this means both the new wine and the new wineskins are preserved, but the story is about not ruining the old wineskins. Right? And so by putting new wine into new wineskins and not disturbing the contents of the old wineskins, then both the old and new wineskins are preserved, just as being careful that a new patch on a garment doesn't ruin the old garment. We find in some corners of Christianity that this has been taken to mean that it's okay for Jews to keep the Torah, the old wineskins, and worship the God of the Old Testament for themselves, kind of as a possible means of salvation while Gentile followers of Christ adopt Him and the New Testament, the new wine and new wineskins, and this is their means of salvation. See, it's important to notice that Yeshua says that both the new and the old are meant to be preserved. That is, in the first half of the verse, one of the concerns is that the old wineskins could become ruined we're cautioned if they're improperly used. The wine spills, and what does it say? Well, the wineskins are ruined. 
Who cares if the old wineskins are ruined if they're only good for throwing away since Christ's advent? See, the story reflects this deep concern on not ruining either the old or the new wineskins and therefore not losing the old or the new wine. Rather, they are each to be used in such a way as to make them compatible. The difference between the old and the new wineskins is not their value or their relevance. It's their purpose. Their purpose. One was for the fermentation process. The other was for long-term storage. Yeshua's purpose was to save, and He was to inaugurate the Kingdom of God, God on earth. That is what was new. However, that doesn't mean that, the, that what the older vessel was meant to do had become obsolete. The older vessel, the Torah, was never meant to contain the fermentation of salvation. Yet, both vessels are relevant, and they are needed, and their usefulness is compatible when they're properly used together. It's an issue of compatibility, not of superiority, certainly not of replacement. To be clear, like all biblical analogies, no matter who is making them, we are to take them as a generality not to try to draw precise one-to-one comparisons to the various objects used in the analogy. Okay? All right, with that, let's move on. Let's move on to Matthew 9, verse 18. Verse, uh, verse 18. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1234. 1234. It's probably the combination on your luggage. While I was while he was talking, an official came in. He kneeled down in front of him and he said, My daughter has just died. But if you come and lay your hand on her, she will live. Yeshua with his Talmudim, his disciples, got up and followed him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for twelve years approached him from behind and touched the tzitzit on his robe. For she said to herself, If I can only touch his robe, I'll be healed. Yeshua turned. He saw her and he said, Courage, daughter, your trust has healed you. She was instantly healed. When Yeshua arrived at the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in an uproar, he said, Everybody out! This girl isn't dead, she's only sleeping. They jeered at him. But after the people had been put outside, he entered, he took hold of the girl's hand, and she got up. News of this spread throughout all that region. So as Yeshua went on from there, two blind men began following him, shouting, Son of David, take pity on us. And when he entered the house, the blind men came up. And Yeshua said to them, Do you believe? that I have the power to do this. They replied, Yes, sir. Then he touched their eyes and said, Let it happen to you according to your trust, and their sight was restored. Yeshua warned them, 
severely, see that no one knows about it, but instead they went away and talked about him throughout the district. These verses return us to Yeshua doing miracle healings. Now he was still at the table, dining with men of several walks and beliefs, when a person suddenly entered the scene and interrupted it by kneeling down in front of him. Now this person's position in society is important to the story. He is listed in Matthew as simply an official. However, this account is also told in Mark and in Luke, and there we get some additional and pertinent information about what kind of an official he was, even exactly who he was. Luke 8.41, Then there came a man named Yair, who was president of the synagogue, and following at Yeshua's feet, he pleaded with him to come to his house. Mark 5.22, There came to him a synagogue official, Yair by name, who fell at his feet. Now, although two different Greek words are used to explain the exact title or position of this, this man, both essentially tell us that he is a ruler of the synagogue, usually called the president of the synagogue. This is the man who is assigned with the synagogue's daily administrations. He is not the same as the scribe who is the teacher-preacher at the synagogue. No doubt this man must have been the man who presides over the synagogue located right there in Capernaum that Jesus himself attended. So the man was known to Christ. This explains why the man felt he could interrupt and why Yeshua didn't admonish him for it. What did the official want? He wanted the miracle healer, the Sadiq, the holy man, to come to his home and resurrect his daughter who had died. Now we mustn't take this belief that Jesus might be able to reanimate his daughter from death as trust in him as Messiah or as God on earth. I mean, so far we haven't witnessed anything that we can call a conversion. The man told Christ that if he would come to his home, he just knew that by Yeshua laying his hands on her, that little girl would be raised from the dead. All the Gospels agree that immediately Yeshua, along with some of his disciples, went with the synagogue official. But on the way there, placed probably no more than a few hundred feet from where he was, his walk was interrupted by a woman who had had a serious problem that had been with her for a long time. Long time. This woman had a hemorrhage that had plagued her for 12 years. And by hemorrhage, this means she had a continuing issue of blood, as with a never-ending menstrual cycle. The immediate problem with this was less a matter of her physical health. Now, obviously, it was not so severe as to inca incapacitate or to kill her, since she'd lived with it for 12 years. But instead, it was the ritual condition that resulted from it. This flow of blood rendered her ritually unclean, according to the Torah, and this made her an outcast. Listen to Leviticus 
If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not during her period, or if her discharge lasts beyond the normal end of her period, then throughout the time she is having an unclean discharge, she will be as when she is in Nida. She is unclean. This was a huge problem for her. She can't associate with anyone. She can't even enter someone's home. If she was married, and this isn't stated, but if she was, she couldn't have shared a bed, not even a chair with her husband, because this would have transferred her uncleanness to him. Now it's interesting that biblically ritual impurity could infect another simply through touch. But sin did nothing of the kind. Sin was to be eradicated because bad behavior was too often mimicked. And also because sin could be harmful to another person. I mean, a, a violent person could injure or murder, for example. So while there is a definite relationship between sin and uncleanness, they are not the same things. They each have their own effects, consequences, cures. Her problem was ritual uncleanness, not sin. We're told that the woman literally sneaked up behind Christ and reached out and touched his robe, or better, the hem of his garment, or best, his tzitzit. Peasant Jews did not usually have the bottom of their, their garments hemmed. This was something the more wealthy did. A fine hem, that was the mark of an expensive garment. And these Jews certainly didn't have some type of fringe or an ornamentation that circled the skirt of their outer garment. But Jewish men did wear tassels, tzitziot. That's plural for tzitzit. These tzitzit were religious in nature. They were commanded by the law of Moses. In Numbers 15, 37 through 41, Adonai said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, instruct them to make throughout all their generations tzitziot on the corners of their garments and to put with the tzitzit on each corner a blue thread. It is to be a tzitzit for you to look at, to remember all of Adonai's commandments and to obey them, so that you won't go around wherever your own heart and eyes lead you to prostitute yourselves. But it will help you remember and obey all my mitzvot commandments and to be holy for your God. I am Adonai your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt in order to be your God. I am Adonai your God. So, naturally, Yeshua would have been in violation of the law of Moses if he hadn't warned them. Now, what else stands out is this woman with a hemorrhage didn't merely touch his garment, she touched the most holy part of his garment, the tzitzit. No doubt she snuck up from behind because no Jew would have allowed her anywhere near him for fear of contracting ritual impurity. But a strange thing happened when she touched him. Not only did he instantly sense her presence, 
but her uncleanness did not render him unclean, which it should have. The matter of transmitting, transmitting uncleanness was a one-way street. An unclean person touching a clean person could only infect the ritually pure person. The cleanness could not flow to the unclean. But in this case, it did. Instantly the woman was healed. Why? Well, that's what Sadakim, holy men, do. Yet, I have never read of a Zadik, never, that was said to have healed through removing the ritual uncleanness from a person. This seems to be something that no one had ever been able to do prior to Christ. In fact, it really wasn't even thought to be a possibility. Yet this woman, like that Roman centurion, held a kind of faith and trust that accepted without doubt that what Yeshua did was real, that He was able to do it, and that He did more than any other faith healer had ever done, even though neither one of them thought of Yeshua as any more than a holy man par excellence who had the greatest compassion on all who came to Him. Now perhaps it was the outward, although imperfect, display of unequivocal trust that Yeshua wanted the disciples and the crowds to notice and to learn from, even though it was certainly not a saving kind of trust that would affect their eternity. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 23, the interrupted story of the synagogue official whose daughter had died resumes. Yeshua arrives at his house, just a couple of minutes away, and immediately notices the flute players. Now, flutes are also sometimes called clarinets. And they accompanied, this, these flute players were accompanied with the agitation of a number of people who were there. Now this well reflects Jewish mourning practices in those days, especially for those who were reasonably well off financially. Josephus, the Jewish Roman historian who was born not long after Christ was crucified, makes a comment on this matter, something that he was quite familiar with. In his book called Jewish Wars that he wrote concerning death and mourning, he says this, For thirty days the lamentations never ceased in the city, and many of the mourners hired clarinet flute players to accompany their funeral dirges. Some years later in the Mishnah, Rabbi Judah was recorded as saying, even the poorest in Israel should hire no less than two clarinets, two flutes, and one wailing woman. So, in reality it's not unlike funerals elsewhere in the world that certain local burial and grieving customs, regardless of the cost, have to be observed, otherwise it's considered rude and uncaring. Surprisingly, Yeshua's response was to immediately order everyone out of the house. His reason? He says, she's not dead, she's only sleeping. What He really wanted was privacy and an end 
to the morning. Now, this statement has caused no end to the debates about this passage. That is, some say Yeshua was about to resurrect the little girl from the dead. Others say she may only have been ill, maybe in some kind of a catatonic state, but certainly alive. And the first thing I would say about this is that if she wasn't really dead, that would be surprising. Because it's not like people in every age don't know what a dead person looks like, and feels like, and even smells like. The girl was dead. She was a corpse when Christ arrived. See, the, the use of the word sleep and other terms associated with sleeping are regularly used in the Bible when speaking about death. It seems to be just kind of a kinder, gentler way of saying it. But also it indicates that the condition of death is, in some strange way, not necessarily permanent. And further, especially for those considered to have lived righteously before the Lord, there is hope of a pleasant afterlife. Even in Christ's day, and in the possibility of an afterlife, this was in no way agreed upon within Judaism. Death, what happens afterwards, this was a terrifying prospect, such that the one thing the people then could agree on was, it's always better to be alive than dead. Daniel spoke of death and an afterlife, but he framed it in our sleeping sense in Daniel 12.2. Many of those sleeping in the dust of the earth will awaken, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting shame and aberrance. So here Daniel likens death to sleeping, says there will be an awakening, a sleep term, right? And the results won't be the same for everybody. But clearly, whatever everlasting life after death looks like, others will experience the condition of shame. In the Psalms, we read in Psalms 49 verses 15 and 16, like sheep they are all destined for Sheol, death will be their shepherd. The upright will rule them in the morning, and their forms will waste away in Sheol, the grave, until they need no dwelling. But God will redeem me from Sheol's control, because He will receive me. Then in the book of John, Christ says, Yeshua said these things, and afterwards He said to the Talmudim, Our friend Eleazar has gone to sleep but I'm going to order him to wake up. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's gone to sleep, then he's going to get better. Now Yeshua had used the phrase to speak about Eliezer's death. They thought he'd been talking literally about sleep. So Yeshua told them in plain language, Eliezer's died. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may come to trust. But let's go to him. See, the point being that death and sleep were associated words. So the matter wasn't that some ignorant people at this synagogue president's house wrongly assumed that his daughter was dead, and that some time even passed 
enough time for the word to get out, for the girl's father to hire professional mourners and even flute players before Jesus was asked to come, before he was asked to reverse the death of the little girl. It was also not that Yeshua looked at her and more or less said, Ah, quit mourning, you're all wrong about this. This little girl never died at all. In fact, the professional mourners and others were pretty offended by Yeshua's statement that she wasn't dead, says they jeered at him, but rather only asleep, because it was implying they were kind of stupid. Nonetheless, he took her hand, she came awake, he made her alive from the dead. So later, when Christ himself was also risen from the dead, he wasn't the first instance, instance of this. But let's also not bypass an important element to this story. The absolute highest degree of ritual impurity that a Jew could acquire was to touch a dead body. So understand the ramifications of this act that Matthew's Jewish readers would have instantly picked up on. First, Yeshua allows an unclean woman to touch the holiest part of his garment, his tzitzit. Now he enters the home of a dead person and he intentionally touches her corpse. In both cases, however, he's not affected. Rather, he affects those who are unclean and afflicted even unto death. Unheard of. Unheard of. It's no wonder people flocked to him, did anything to get before him, and equally why the Pharisees and then the high priest were afraid of him. They were afraid of him, and so they wanted to discredit him. They couldn't fathom anyone doing what he did. They had no way of competing with this. His miracles were too many, too public, too spectacular to deny. So we hear these words of verse 26, news of this spread throughout all the region. Well, I would hope so. So the public frenzy about him was only going to increase. Well, verse 27 has Yeshua healing two blind men. Now this story does not appear in Luke or in Mark. Why Matthew's inclusion of this story about healing the blind men? Likely because the Jewish tradition at that time was that of all afflictions, blindness was most closely associated to having been caused by sin. So blind people received less sympathy and mercy than those with other severe disabilities. And if the blindness was caused by a sin, well, then an animal sacrifice couldn't cure it, so there was no hope for them. This is highlighted in this particular passage from John's Gospel. Listen to John starting uh, John 9, starting at verse 1. As Yeshua passed along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Now, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that would cause him to be born blind? And Yeshua answered, His blindness is due neither to his sin nor to that of his parents. It happened so that God's power might be seen at work in him. 
Notice how Yeshua's disciples, they just took it for granted. They took it as a given that it was either the sin of the victim or the sin of his parents that was the cause of their this person's blindness. So here in Matthew, Yeshua going to these two blind men to heal them, well, that wouldn't have been all that popular or applauded by the onlookers. See, and if sin was the cause, well then forgiveness was the only remedy. But no man could forgive sins. Very interestingly, these blind men shouted out, and they addressed him as Son of David. That's strange. Where did they get that from? What did it mean? I mean, perhaps they were aware of Yeshua's family lineage as being a true descendant of David, but then again, so were hundreds of other Jews living at that time, descendants of David. I mean, that he had lots of kids. David did. It's puzzling. It's puzzled scholars for centuries. Now, some say it was written here because Matthew wanted to find a way to connect Jesus to David in order to validate the genealogy he opened up his gospel with, and did it by inserting this exclamation from these two blind men. In other words, these scholars are saying that these words, Son of David, were never actually uttered. Matthew just added them from his own mind in order to make a connection. I think that Davies and Allison have come up with a possible reason for their exclamation, rather, that at least has some good foundation and it is plausible. That's what we'll begin our lesson with next week.